Welcome to the GemServe CyberHacks podcast, where we look at emerging threats and new challenges in cybersecurity and data privacy. In this series, we will be discussing these issues with special guests drawn from the front line of cybersecurity. Today, I'm very pleased to welcome Nina Schick to discuss the subject of deep fakes and disinformation. Nina is a distinguished researcher, author, and broadcaster with a deep specialist knowledge in this area. Her latest book, titled Deep Fakes and the Infocalypse, What You Urgently Need to Know, provides fascinating and chilling insight into the threats posed by deep fakes and their malicious use by bad actors. Nina has spent a number of years as a senior advisor to political leaders on this topic in the US, UK, and at NATO, including a period advising Joe Biden prior to the successful 2020 election campaign. Now President Biden, of course. Hello and welcome, Nina. Great to be here, Adam. My first question is an introduction to the topic, really. I was fascinated by the concept of processing fluency, which I think is very important, and the way our brains process visual imagery. I think you raised that in the early chapter of uh, the first chapter of the book. And the book is a very succinct summary of the history of image manipulation. Can you say a little bit about that just to add sort of context? Yeah, I mean, processing fluency is the idea that we are actually hardwired as humans to want to believe something when it looks like it should be right, when it looks like it's correct. And of course, that means that for as long as imagery has been around, humans have been always finding ways to manipulate it. If you look at the history of photographic manipulation, one of the kind of forebears of that was the Soviet dictator, Joseph Stalin, under whom an entire cottage industry developed to manipulating the historical record through photographs. So as he went through his great purges of the 1930s, and literally his enemies were disappeared one by one, there were these Soviet craftsmen who would go back and take them out of the visual record by removing them, or the word was unpersoning them from photographs. Just as the Soviet empire was collapsing in 1990, that's when you had the release of the first mass market software editing program, Photoshop. And even now, 30 years later, you know, when so many images are retouched and photoshopped, we still often look at an image and think it's real. You know, you look at the front cover of a magazine and you think the model actually looks like that or the actress actually looks like that. And of course, since Photoshop, there have been many more applications. It's much easier to do it with Instagram filters, smartphone apps. So it's consistently become easier. But now what we are about to enter with the age of synthetic media is something entirely different from anything we've known in the past, because now we're entering an era where artificial intelligence can actually manipulate the visual record. And not only that, but recreate media that looks so authentic that we as humans won't be able to tell whether that piece of media, image, video uh, is authentic or not. And we'll come on to deep fakes in a moment, but can I ask, how would you like to introduce our audience to the core concepts of misinformation, disinformation, and the information apocalypse that 
the term you coin in the book. Yeah, I think the background context of what we're discussing here is really the paradigm change when it comes to our information ecosystem. And it's rooted in the transformational technology of the information age. And the three kind of main factors of that are the internet, the smartphone and social media. They are the cornerstones of the single global information ecosystem that's come into being really over only the past 35 years. And it's really difficult to even overstate how fundamental this ecosystem has become uh, to the course of human history. My own background is in geopolitics, and I think this single information ecosystem is going to become, already is, one of the single most geopolitical uh, events in history. 3.8 billion people, right, half of the world, already plug into this ecosystem using mobile internet. And over the next 10 years, the other half were predominantly going to be in Africa and Asia will be plugging in too. And whilst the utopian dream for the early pioneers of the technology that built this was that this ecosystem with this would be this unmitigated good for humanity. What's become abundantly clear, especially over the last decade, is that it has a darker side too, not because the technology is, inherent, is inherently bad, but because this technology is just an amplifier of human intentions. So just as it's amplified some of the best parts of the human condition, it has undoubtedly amplified some of the worst parts of the human condition, in which has manifested in this profound crisis of mis- and disinformation we face today. And this, I think, is an evolving and dangerous ecosystem becoming increasingly untrustworthy. I call it the infocalypse. Let's dive into some of the case studies around the bad actors that you raise in the book. Uh, I'm thinking uh, around about the 2016 presidential election, you, you bring up the subject of uh, a very um, ominous sounding piece of work called Project Lacta. Could you talk to us about some of the geopolitical bad actors in that space? Disinformation and misinformation are as old as the human society as well, right? They're inherently human conditions. There's always going to be bad actors. But what's very interesting is how the technology of the information age has uh, allowed bad actors to have far more reach. And when the invasion of eastern Ukraine and the annexation of Crimea by Russia was happening in 2014, I found it fascinating to see how one actor, which is always geopolitically punched above its weight because of its expertise in disinformation operations, uh, the Soviet Union, now Russia, started to see how this new information ecosystem could be utilized to its own benefit. And one of the things that they started doing is that they set up this agency called the IRA, the Internet Research Agency, to think about how they could game social media to their own benefit. We now know it's become a very contentious issue, of course, in U.S. politics, that there was Russian interference in the 2016 election. What was really interesting for me is that they actually cultivated those operations for many years. So the social media operations began in 2013. And the aim of the social media operations using Facebook, Twitter and Instagram was to drive discord into American society. So to play identity politics. And the very interesting thing about it was that although there's this conventional narrative that perhaps only, you know, dumb Trump voters on the right were targeted, actually they were playing the entire spectrum and there was a disproportionate focus on the left and they were targeting the African-American community, especially to make them feel disenfranchised 
from the rest of society so that they wouldn't go and vote in the 2016 elections. And I'm aware of the study that um, I know you know, Rennie DeResta, I think it was at Stanford at the time, did quite a deep dive on the attempts to uh, to Democrat voter suppression. But did, did you see the operations spawn from that? I mean, the, the complexity appears to have been layered from what I've read. Could you say a little bit more about where they took that? Because I think the, I know you raised in the book, there was a kind of three-pronged structure to their effort. One was hacking the actual voting infrastructure. The second was this social media operations, Project Lacta, so driving tribalism and identity politics and discord through the use of social media by posing as these authentic Americans, right? By posing in groups and communities to basically make people feel proud in their distinct identities. And once you build up the identities to then inject these groups with sporadic um, and often legitimate political grievances so they wouldn't go out and vote. And the third prong was through more kind of traditional hack and dump cyber operations. And that prong ended up being very, very effective because it was the kind of WikiLeaks dump in 2016 that led to this conspiracy of Pizzagate, which has now spawned four years later, five years later, into the first global cult of conspiracy in the form of QAnon. There's a statistic you bring out in the book from Synthesia around the sort of next three to five years and in their judgment, sort of 90% of all media will be synthetic. It's just, it's an amazing statistic. Can you just talk a little bit about, you know, where you see the commercial incentives there for that race to development? The commercial incentives are going to be huge. And I think that quite often, um, at least in the public debate, you come at this uh, issue of synthetic media from deepfakes, right? But this is so much bigger than non-consensual pornography or celebrity face swaps. This is something that's going to transform the future of human communication and I think the future of all media production. AI is increasingly going to be used to create all content in the future. And that's going to democratize content production for everybody. You're talking about the same level of video effects that today are only viable by a very well-resourced actor like a Hollywood studio, multi-million dollar budgets, teams of special effects artists. And you're saying that, you know, basically a YouTuber will be able to do that by the end of the decade and will be able to do that at scale. So what we're talking about with synthetic media is the transformation of entire industries from entertainment to advertising to fashion. So there's going to be huge commercial incentive. And that's why it's interesting to see that since kind of synthetic media and deepfakes started emerging less than, you know, barely three years ago, now we have over 150 startups who are working in the synthetic media generation space. You have um, Synthesia, which is a company working on just corporate communications. They basically work with Fortune 500 companies where they allow CEOs to, with the click of a button, generate synthetic video of them speaking in multiple different languages so they can communicate to markets across the world, right? And another example is how it's going to change the future of advertising. You're going to see the emergence of personalized synthetic advertising, right? Personalized marketing based on data, a collected data and its analysis is already so successful. So in the next 10 years, you're, you're going to be, forget about 
about being targeted by personal commercial content. You're actually going to have content that's specifically tailor-made for you by AI. So it's hard to underestimate, I think, the vastness of the paradigm change when it comes to synthetic media. It's much bigger than just deep fakes. Deep fakes is the malicious application of synthetic media, but there are going to be many legitimate uses of synthetic media as well. It is, you're right, it is creepy is the word that, uh, and coercive as well in nature. In terms of threats to the information ecosystem, then the statistic, one of the statistics you bring up in the book about the insidious nature of it, for example, 5.3 billion people plugged into the internet, social media and information environment by 2023, I think is one of the more chilling statistics that you bring out. So how do you see the spawning of it over the next year, 18 months? You know, Do you see a deliberate pattern emerging to target populations of that magnitude? Well, I think the the key is, again, just this understanding that we have now, this conceptual framework to start from is that we've created this single global information ecosystem, which the dream was, would liberate all of humanity. And instead, we're seeing it has very, very dark uh, underbelly as well. And of course, pretty soon, within the next decade, almost all of humanity is going to exist in this. So we now have created this kind of wild west terra incognita where there are no rules, anything goes, there's hardly any safeguards in place to to differentiate good from bad information, right? And we're seeing the pernicious effects of that, not only kind of at the geopolitical level or within national politics, but we're starting to see the real impact it has on businesses, the threats it brings to every individual person. So I think that the starting point in terms of like how this is going to evolve is simply the understanding that we are facing a paradigm change here and we all exist within this ecosystem which has become more and more dangerous. So the key question is, we accept that's true. How do we shore up the integrity of this ecosystem so that it's less dangerous? Because right now the trends are, I think, that it's becoming more and more dangerous. That brings me nicely on to my next question, actually, and and the subject of the dark underbelly. The next talking point is around the the concept of truth decay, what we mean by that and what the significance of that is, which follows on from the point you're making there. I'd like to get your take on events in the US, particularly around the 6th of January. You brought up the subject of QAnon, which I see getting more and more press in the UK and Europe. Uh, Do you see QAnon now that, obviously, the Trump administration is no more? Do you see it receding or... You know, where is that where is that going under the Biden administration? So I don't see it receding because actually I think this is much bigger than Trump and much bigger than the Biden administration coming again to the, the fundamental change, which is the information ecosystem. The big change is that until fairly recently, there were more monolithic sources of information in society, right? There were generally one or two public broadcaster, your leaders, the government, and then your local community. So that led to a certain amount of cohesion and trust in society. What's happened over the past 30 years in the age of information is that model has been dramatically upended for the first time in, 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 in human history. And the abundance of information by which we're faced now means that we're facing something which is known as censorship through noise. When you think of censorship, we still traditionally tend to think of kind of the North Korean model, right? Being drip fed, minimal information, 
If you have too much information, you could do full circle. Uh, you have the same effect of censorship. And one consequence of this, sense, this censorship of noise, which is, seems to be particularly abundant now in Western democratic societies because of our commitment to freedom of information, is an abundance of mis- and disinformation and the breakdown of trust in society. So increasingly, citizens no longer trust what used to be the monolithic sources of information in society. You see that playing out, for example, in the United States, where the polarization has become so extreme with regards to moving forward until you can tackle the integrity of the information ecosystem itself. This is much larger than Biden or Trump. Trump was very much, in my view, a symptom, not the cause, although, you know, he was uh, personally aggravated the situation a lot, given that he was, for example, one of the biggest purveyors of disinformation when it came to COVID. But this is much bigger than Biden or Trump in and of themselves. I'm conscious that the deep fake technology um, and the and the, the GAN technology that sits behind it may still be in the hands of a few very gifted technologists and researchers. Can we talk a little bit about cheap fakes and the widespread of highly sophisticated deep fake technology? Where is that taking us? And if you can navigate that for us and drift there from the high end GAN technology down to people with a smartphone being able to bring together very, very sophisticated deep fakes. Yeah, I think um, cheap fakes, they are a type of manipulated media or miscontextualized media or crudely edited media that's been done without, you know, sophisticated techniques like AI. And often a cheap fake is not even very convincing. You know, you can look at it um, and you can see that this is a fake piece of media. However, whether or not the fidelity is high is in many ways a moot point because what we've seen over the past 10 years is that they are devastatingly effective. Um, you see that at the level of geopolitics where, for example, in places like Myanmar, cheap fakes, when this society, which is basically cut off from the internet, became open to this information ecosystem almost overnight. Cheap fakes, which were spread on Facebook, basically led to this process whereby the ethnic cleansing of the Muslim minority Rohingya started in 2017. So it's been already proven to have such devastating effects. You mentioned January the 6th, uh, the Capitol raid in the United States, and that was in large part driven by cheap fakes. Yeah. Cheap fakes, which were actually amplified by the then president of the United States, where he showed authentic video, for example. But he was saying that this was evidence of tampering, right? Votes being thrown away, evidence of his of his myth, his disinformation that somehow the election had yeah. been spread, uh, had been subjected to widespread voter fraud. So if you think about how devastatingly effective cheap fakes already are and their fidelity isn't very, very high, then think about where we're heading when over the next decade, synthetic media and deep fakes become widely accessible via very easy to use interfaces like smartphone apps to not only state actors, right, but even single individuals. You literally will be able to shape the realities of people on a scale which is something we haven't seen before. So I think that is potentially very, very dangerous to all kind of democratic societies. Indeed. And in chapter, I think it's chapter five in the book, you call out some of the, the fraud, the potentials of fraud, uh, you know, and, and the ability to cause public alarm there, you know, particularly even, even to take a, a, a 
five minutes just to think about the potential malicious application and the narrative that may be spun around it. It's incredibly dangerous. And I think the 6th of January, or the events of the 6th of January, are a, are a perfect illustration of the real world consequences of cheap fakes with a particularly malicious narrative to underpin it. Where do you see us containing some of those issues or beginning to understand? You know, is, that, is it another... Is it another case of technology has run or is running at a pace that we can never bring ourselves to fully comprehend and control? Yes. I think the genie is already well and truly out of the bottle, right? The technological progress of this exponential age is such that it's inevitable that we as a society are going to be playing catch up. If you look at the human at the course of human history, when you've had huge transformations in the way that we communicate, there always has been a little more time for society to catch up. So between the advent of the printing press, which led to the Reformation and changed the course of world history, and then the birth of modern photography, you had four centuries. Over the past 30 years, we've had the internet, the smartphones, social media. Now we're entering the age of synthetic media. You know, it's really, really hard for us to catch up. And I think the nature of this is always that we're going to be on the back foot. So in terms of our response, what should the priorities of our response be? How does it fit and how would it fit with, you know, current initiatives in respect of social media? Because social media is obviously the viral engine uh, for a lot of these conspiracy theories and, you know, obviously deepfakes would be a part of that. Where does that square with the current antitrust initiatives in respect of big tech? The first step or first principle should be acknowledging that this is a paradigm change and we need to adapt our approach accordingly. The kind of efforts that are already underway are welcome. However, I would say that they're still too piecemeal, right? You can't apply the rules of checkers if what we're playing right now is a game of 3D chess. The conceptual understanding that it's the entire ecosystem itself should be the guiding principle when it comes to leading our approach. So I think fundamentally, you have to take a networked approach, both regulation, education, big tech, society-wide resilience building have to be a part of the solution. So I think um, with the antitrust, it's very interesting and very important establishing a precedence in particular because these big tech companies have become these arbiters of power in this new information ecosystem. They're not accountable to anyone apart from their shareholders. So that's a very salient point. However, I think just singling out the big tech companies is not enough for the scale of what we're dealing with here. As part of that joining up the dots there and you know a response there, do you see the risk of us getting into a kind of AI arms race where the AI involved in production is continually trying to you know, outpace the AI based in uh, detection. Yeah, this is one of the really interesting things about synthetic media. The type of model that has like led to a lot of the recent breakthroughs, again, a general adversarial model, is basically built on two neural networks competing against each other, right? So uh, as one neural network gets better at creating, the other gets better at detecting, and the end result is a, a far better piece of synthetic media. If you take that approach out of just the creation part and you think about how do we deal with the 
coming ubiquity of synthetic media, given that there are going to be so many that no human is going to be able to detect them all. Even sophisticated digital forensic techniques, you know, looking at shadows or how many times an eye, eyelash winks or all these kind of markers that are still possible to detect now are going to become impossible to detect. So then you have to think about well, if we can't detect it as humans, both because of the fidelity and because of the scale in terms of ubiquity, then we need to start building detection models, right? AI to detect synthetic media. Is there something in the DNA of synthetic media that always distinguishes it from authentic media, even when humans can no longer see it? As you already correctly pointed out, there's been so much interest in the generation side not least because of the monolith of kind of commercial applications and the kind of huge boost that that could give. There's been so much interest. There's been less interest in working on the detection side. However, that's starting to build momentum now. But the interesting question for me, which I don't have an answer to, and which the AI research community itself seems to be split on, is whether or not you reach a point where no detector will be able to outbeat the generator. So the synthetic media production becomes so good that even a detector won't be able to tell uh, that it's that it's synthetic. And I think we don't know whether we'll reach that point yet. AI experts have different views on on whether or not that's going to happen interesting that's fascinating do you see specific technologists and people involved in the detection and countering the, the negative impact of the technology do you see particular lights or, or you know green shoots in that area that you would you'd particularly want to call out i know you do call out deep trace in the book but maybe you could you know navigate the sort of path that's being forged at the moment by technologists that are kind of at the front line of detection. It's been great to see how in the past 24 months, you have many private companies and industry leading the way in terms of detection, um, like Sensity. Um, there are various other challenges and initiatives that have taken place. For example, Facebook, um, I think it was only last year where they invited, you know, any number of organizations or researchers to kind of put forward their algorithms and models to build the best kind of deep fake detectors. The problem is that the detectors can only be as good as the training data. Of course. And because there is no one monolithic way to create deep fakes, in order to have the best detectors, you need to have the biggest data set possible in terms of uh, the synthetic media you train your detection model on. Because a lot of these private companies and uh, initiatives like the one led by Facebook, which come out with stats like, okay, our detection model is capable of 90% accuracy when it comes to detecting synthetic media. That's only true for the training data that they've been trained on, right? And uh, companies like Sensity, which are, I think... Um, really forward looking, trying to get into this space, deserve, I think, um, you know, a lot of uh, funding and support. By the way, it's really interesting to say that aside from these private companies, which are starting to spring up on deepfake detection, the first program that I knew of was um, at DARPA, okay, yeah. right? So the US yeah, yeah. military. So it's, it's the future <laughs> with their metaphor program, where they basically try to build a platform where they can kind of detect all kind of media, synthetic media um, in like a real time, be able to tell whether or not that content is authentic. So 
the importance of this as a national security issue has been leading some um, initiatives by government and military, which I'm sure exist in more than one country around the world. Well, that brings me nicely on to the final point I wanted to discuss. And taking what you said there around the building blocks of a united response in hoping that counter technology will will solve the problem for us. I know you, you draw out the example of uh, Estonia in the latter stages of the book. Can you just talk to us about how you, you see that as a model for other governments to get to grips with the issue? Yeah, I had to kind of try to find a, a good example in uh, you know what seems like a very difficult space in terms of combating this monumental challenge. And I chose Estonia because um, they have traditionally been very, very strong in terms of fighting disinformation, not least because as a former former um, part of the Soviet Union, sitting right there on the border, they've been subjected many times to kind of Soviet disinformation efforts to undermine the state. And what they've done very well, which is, I think, a starting point for everyone, is that when it comes to resilience building, it needs to become a society-wide priority, right? And cybersecurity is at its heart. So the first line of defense, um, and I know that often... Cybersecurity is still thought of something that's a department at a company. But I think it's increasingly evident that security teams are more than that. They're not just a company. This is not just a company level problem. It is essential priority of every modern society that exists in this information ecosystem. Right. So if you work in the security industry in many ways, I think you're a pioneer because fundamentally your work is taking place in this new ecosystem, which is essentially shaping the future of humanity. You serve a fundamental purpose in society. You're the first responders. And then like Estonia, you think about building your defenses like a medieval fortress. So you have the moat, the outer walls, the inner walls, and thinking about other layers of human security to start building resilience. And that means better regulation, updated legal frameworks, you know, can we get in place supranational non-proliferation treaties on disinformation? Because that is the ultimate and hardest challenge wow. when you start adapting this to yeah. not just one nation state. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, the technical solutions, we've, which we've already touched upon, both in terms of detection capabilities, but also in terms of building frameworks for media provenance, digital literacy and education. So... <laughs> <laughs> there is no one there is no one single silver bullet a fascinating challenge you know Nina it's been wonderful to speak to you today thank you so much I really appreciated it thank you Adam really enjoyed it thanks for having me 